All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting installment of Under the Dome. I'm your host, Alan Ulrich, with uh, my sidekick here, Mr. Sean Williams. How you doing tonight, Sean? It's all good in my neighborhood, brother. How are you? Uh, I'm doing all right. Doing all right for the week before Mardi Gras. Shouldn't be too bad this week. Uh, Parades start up tomorrow. So I should be getting off work early because I work downtown. So that shouldn't be bad at all. <laughs> uh, hey, that's awesome. Bro. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, next Tuesday night will be Mardi Gras night. So I'm curious to see how many people are going to be watching this Tuesday night and how many are still going to be at the parades or at parties or whatever. Well, hey, we, we take what we can get. Uh, I have no, uh, no reservations whatsoever in uh assuming knowing our uh, our wonderful followers like i do i i feel reasonably sure that we're gonna have one hell of a following next week absolutely <laughs> and, and what do we have coming up next who, week uh, and you what more do they need right right what do we have coming up next week sean uh well like i said me and you but uh, if that's not enough to draw the crowd, uh, how about a, a, a Hall of Famer in uh, wide receiver, Joe Horn? He will be joining us next week. I, I don't know why I put a hat on every week because I, I, I keep it on through the intro and then I usually take it off. Oh, I'm vain. Excuse me. <laughs> Getting back to the agenda at hand. Um, yeah. Joe Horn has been gracious enough to uh, accept our invitation to join us next week. And uh, you guys, please go out and support uh, the Future Stars League, which on Twitter is at future underscore stars 12, as well as God Hands University, which is at you got hands um and uh also all, all you uh you real who that uh <laughs> all you real who that nation people uh you want to follow the real joe horn it is at 87 joe horn uh and make no mistake about it this is the man uh Mr. Hollywood himself, uh, and he will be joining us next week. Uh, I, I got our last, I got seven last things Pro Bowl going. receiver. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's our last Pro Bowl receiver. So yeah, it's well, well you he's know, always um, go ahead. I was going to say, he's always got something to say, and he's got plenty of stories. We're going to talk to him a little bit about, of course, this camp that he's helped put on. Um, you know, what he's working on now. Uh, but also I want to talk to him about his time with the Saints. Uh, what was it like playing under Jim Hazlitt? I want to ask him questions about the end of that 2002 season uh, where we had to win one game and we missed the playoffs. Uh, I mean, one game to win, to go to the playoffs, we miss, ended up missing the playoffs by losing those last three. Uh, the Katrina year the year we came back in 2006. So there's lots of questions uh, I'm hoping to get a chance to ask Joe. Uh, I know he likes to talk and, uh, you know, he's going to kind of kind of run this show for us, so, which is no big deal. I, I, it, you know, this show is really about the fans. And Joe, is, Joe's got a lot of stories to share. So, you know. Well, I, 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 if, I, I think that we're really, really fortunate <laughs> in the fact that uh, – by his own admission, Joe doesn't do a lot of interviews. Uh, mm -hmm. It's so uh, him making time for us. I think uh, that's, that's really, uh, I don't know the word I'm, I'm searching for here. Uh, special. Very yeah. special. Very honored. Uh, you know, it, it, it's something, it's something I'd love to get. I, I, I want, Say, I'd love to get more Saints players on because I'd love to have the fans hear from the, the players themselves what it was like to be a Saints player. Because, yeah. you know, 
if you're like me, uh, especially when you were a kid, you watched the Saints play, you always wanted to be a professional football player and to play in the Dome. I mean, I've been in oh, the wow. Dome. I've been in the Dome on the field. Uh, I stood at the 50-yard line, kind of looked up and looked around at that at, at, at the stadium and just imagining, you know, 70,000 fans screaming, you know, and just just the sheer adrenaline of what that must have been like to have something happen, to get a sack, to score a touchdown, to make a big play, yeah. what that was like to look up and see 70,000 people on their feet screaming. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm looking and every every NFL team thinks that their fan base is the most awesome, uh, the most in tune with their team. But we all know that there ain't nothing like the Houdet Nation when it comes to no. being on the level with their players. Uh, and, you know, all those other people, they got the right to be wrong and the right to be misguided. But anyway, well, uh, <laughs> really well, quickly, that... uh, we want to. No, go ahead. You're getting ready to say. Go ahead. No, you're getting ready to say uh, sponsors and everything. Yeah, I was going to pay the bills real quick. Uh, we want to thank Fan First Productions for sponsoring our show uh, along with the uh, the C3 Networks. Uh, you guys check out the uh, Carolina Cat Chronicles when you have a chance. These guys are uh, really good at what they do, despite the fact that they're with uh, the Carolina Panthers. <laughs> we love hey. them anyway. Hey, um, it, it's interesting to hear another team's perspective. I've always said, yeah, when you watch, when you listen to fans' complaints about their team, especially when they're not winning, all you do is just take the names of the coaches and the players out and substitute for that particular t- fan base's coaches and players. It's the same complaints. Absolutely. Know. Oh my God, we're so conservative. Oh my God, we got coaches who can't coach. Well, oh my God, we got. <laughs> This this player is a problem. That player is a problem. We need to do this. We need to do that. Our general manager can't can't draft talent. We have you know we have the worst talent evaluation. It's every team. It really is. Yeah. And it really uh, is. so it it, it it's it, please go and check those guys out. They're very entertaining, very informative. Um, they put on a good show. Also, uh, uh, we want to push uh, a show that we're going to be doing April 25th. It'll be a special two-hour pre-draft show. We'll probably be going through uh, an entire first-round scenario to uh, and and see just what could possibly happen two days following our show uh, when the NFL draft opens on the 27th of April. And then, like we said, uh, Next week, one week from tonight, Joe Horn live here on Under the Dome. Can't wait. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hopefully by April 25th, we're not so burnt down in the draft. Like, oh, God, please just let it happen. Let it <laughs> But, you know, ironically, uh, actually, the, the days leading up to the draft, those, those that Tuesday and Wednesday are actually the most interesting days because – that's when the most movement happens. Uh, if you guys yeah. think back to 2006, when did we find out that Reggie Bush was going to be coming to the Saints? We really found out that that night before. Um, I can remember the story. You know, everybody's in the restaurant, and uh, you could see the buzz happening as people. This is early iPhone days, I believe. You know, still the flip phone era, but people started getting the texts and the messages and stuff that, hey. The Houston Texans are taking Mario Williams. That means Reggie Bush is going to be there, you know, and and that kind of rumble happened, you know, just kind of kind of spurred along. And Sean Payton said, you know, he was at a restaurant himself and he was eating. He started diagramming plays up as soon as he found out that we were going to get Reggie Bush. So, yeah, that Tuesday and Wednesday, that's when some of the big trades happen. That's when some of the big moves happen. They announced that uh, whoever has number one pick still at that time. Uh, that's when they're gonna uh, pretty much say who that who that pick is going to be. So, you know, look, for, it's going to be a good show. It really is. Um, because it's the I'm, off season, I'm really looking forward to. Oh. We're gonna have 
uh, we're going to have a lot of special guests on that show. There are going to be quite a few representatives from other teams in the league, such as Kansas City Chiefs, um, probably the Carolina Panthers as well. Uh, those guys might drop by. Uh, we're just going to have a whole lot of different stuff going on. And uh, by the end of that night, we're going to probably give you uh, the most likely scenario of what the Saints possibly will do, not only that first night and second night for rounds one through three, but also for the uh, the remainder of the draft. Five picks this year, correct? Six. 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 Yeah, we're okay. missing a fifth-round pick. We have a, uh, a first, second, third, fourth, no fifth. We have a sixth and seventh. Um, we gave that up for Bell, right? Um, was it Bell or Thomas? No, it was. Uh, you're talking about for the fifth. Um, hang on here. Someone right now is texting me or screaming at me what it was. <laughs> uh, let's see. Saints draft 2017. You know, you're getting me to, to Google this thing. Um, <laughs> I'll find it. Well, let's go ahead and get started on the show itself because we uh, – here we go. That's what I wanted. Um, uh, it doesn't say. Okay. Never mind. Never mind. Oh, well. Somebody, somebody will text me. Somebody will text me in a second because uh, – I on, thought on, we – where is Matt? We did trade it away to move up, but I think it was to get on Yamada, but I'm not positive but I think that's what it was. Okay. Um, I was hoping it would tell me, um, but now I'm starting to just get mock drafts instead of uh, what happened to the fifth round pick. But uh, I think that's what they did. When they moved up uh, in the fourth to get, or moved up to get into the fourth to get on and they lost that fifth round pick. Cause I think they lost the third to go up and get, uh, get bell. Anyway, um, yeah, what we what we're going to try and do right now is because it's the off season and, and free agency really hasn't started yet. Uh, we're going to try and go into who you guys and, and we think are the are the five best uh, in Saints history at every position, and we'll start obviously with the quarterbacks. Um, Sean, who do you think the top five Saints quarterbacks are? And I think one through four is going to be pretty obvious. It's that fifth well, one that's going to be uh, well, a, when a I, challenge. When I posted this on our Facebook page. Of course, uh, there's a text. It is on Yamada. It was I on Yamada. Yeah. I, I knew it had to be Bell or on Yamada. Yeah. Uh, anyway, when I posted this on the Facebook page, uh, I worded it as such that uh, we're probably, more than likely, we're all going to agree on who the number one Saints quarterback of all time is. But – from there down, it gets really contentious, and it varies on so many levels for so many varying factors. I mean, a lot of it has to do with what era you're from, basically. Uh, when you started following the Saints, uh, obviously has a has a bearing on it. As far as me, I think that. Uh, <coughs> in descending order from um, from number five to number one. I'm pulling it up here. My top <laughs> I, I gotta write things down, man. I'm old. My uh my five and I think that you and I are in agreement on our top five as well, which mm -hmm. likely won't ever happen twice. Uh my number five was uh former Ram. Jim Everett. My number four was Bobby Bear. My number three was the first Saints quarterback to win a playoff game in Aaron Brooks. Number two, Archie. Gotta be. And number one was Heath Schuler. I, I mean, uh, Drew Brees. <laughs> <laughs> I love to well. see that poke out in your forehead when I say yeah that. yeah 
Uh, I'm just gonna, uh, you know, mine are obvious too. Mine, yeah, mine are the same way. It's it's Breeze, Manning, Brooks, Abair, and Everett, and I'll tell you why. Um, let's just look purely from the yardage standpoint, okay? If we're gonna look at passing yardage, Drew Breeze is way up there at top, over fifty-three thousand yards passing. Archie Manning is actually still second at 21,000. You just think about that for a minute. Wow. 53 and then 21. And both Archie and Drew have now played the same amount of years, uh, believe it or not. And then after Archie is Aaron Brooks at 19,000. So he's actually behind uh, behind Manning. Uh Bobby Abair in the more conservative Jim Moore offense, short passes, nothing like running a, a five-yard route or third and seven. But, uh, you know, 14,630. Jim Everett is actually the last Saints receiver in the thousands. At t- he's at 10,622. After that, the sixth receiver – now, this is just purely passing yardage. The sixth receiver – is Billy Kilmer at 7,490. Wow. That means Dave Wilson, Steve Walsh, Kenny Stabler, the Billy Joes, Bobby Scott, Wade Wilson, Richard Todd, John Forcade, all those Jeff Blake, all those guys, uh, Bobby Douglas, if you're old enough to know the 1976 season, uh, all those guys fall well behind Billy Kilmer, uh, who was the first Saints quarterback. And he spent uh, the first season and a half in a platoon system, uh, 67, between Gary Quazzo and Kilmer. And then they were, they were convinced Ed Hargett was the future, and they kept trying to put Ed Hargett in there to replace him in the 69 season. So, yeah, Um it's astounding to think about that. And um, you're wearing, uh, you're wearing, in honor of Mr. Kilmer, I, said, I would assume yeah. you're wearing number 17 tonight. Kilmer and, Kilmer <laughs> and, uh, and uh, Jim Everett both. Both wore 17. Yep, exactly. I, you know, and Jim Everett. I think I, it's. I, go ahead. I think it's really interesting when you, when you start asking. It's a lot like, and this goes, uh, goes back to the the conversation that so many people wanted to have following the Super Bowl, the greatest mm-hmm. of all times with uh, Brady being considered in the same breath as players like Montana and so on and so forth. Well, it's the same thing on a much smaller scale, what the criteria is for the best of all times. And for me, in terms of the, the big picture, the Montana, I don't, my favorite quarterback of all time before Drew Brees was Dan Marino. I loved his game. I loved everything about the way that he handled himself on the field. Uh, but he never won a Super Bowl, but I was perfectly fine with that. Uh, but, you know, all that being I, I don't mean to get off on that tangent for tonight. But the criteria for the all-time greatest Saints quarterbacks uh, – there were a lot of things that entered into it. Uh, wins obviously have to enter into it because you're the you're the the focal position of a franchise. You're a franchise player, so to speak. So wins, the success of your team obviously has to have some bearing on it to some people. Uh, but as far as me, that's not the be all end all, and statistics may be important to a lot of people. I, I don't necessarily live or die. <coughs> uh, and, and I think that's obvious in the fact that my number two was Archie Manning. And statistically speaking, he was not an exemplary quarterback by any stretch of the imagination. But his value in terms of putting the New Orleans Saints on the map in the National Football League I don't think it could be topped. Well, here's the thing, and I always try and explain to people who weren't around when Archie was playing. Uh, Archie, first off, 
you have to look at the team around him. He had Danny Abramowitz in the very beginning, okay? That was just until 73, 72. Abramowitz left in 72. Uh, 73, he was with the 49ers. <coughs> so, you know, he loses his top receiver there, okay? 76, he's gone for the whole year because of shoulder and elbow injuries and so forth. He also played with J.D. Roberts, was his coach from 71 to 73. He gets J.D. Roberts gets fired in the uh, in the beginning of the 73 season after the last preseason game. So John North takes over. So from 73 to 75, John North is the head coach. I could be off by a year. I have to go back and look for sure, but I'm almost positive that's the case. But John North's the head coach. Then he gets Hank Stram, 76, 77. Then he gets Dick Nolan, 78, 79, and 80. Dick Nolan gets fired midway through the 80 season. He has Bum Phillips, 81, 82, Manning gets traded. So, you know, the, the team, the coaches, different offenses, different offensive coordinators. It's a revolving door around Archie. So, it, 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 yeah. You have to take that in consideration because how much growth and development is the player going to get if he's constantly getting new coaches, new teammates, new uh, offensive schemes he has to learn. Uh, and then here's the other thing I, I always talk about when you when you look at his statistics, you've got to remember the era that, that, that Archie played from 71 to 78 is what players – well football historians call the dead ball era where you didn't throw the ball a whole lot. Everything was built around the running yeah. game. So Archie was actually running more than he was passing in a lot of these sure. games. Uh, they ran the college option a lot of times, which was one of the reasons why he was hurt in 76 um, because he was getting a crap beat out of him. You know, he didn't have a very good offensive line. You had terrible drafting. It's just so much. But then – when Hank Strand comes and he gets Chuck Muncie and Tony Galbraith in 76, in 78, they bring in Wes Chandler. Uh, they, they bring in uh, Ike Harris. They bring in Conrad Dolber as a guard. You've got – you start putting together Emmanuel Zanders as an offensive guard. You give him Henry Childs, the tight end. You start putting the pieces around Archie to make him a good quarterback. And suddenly now, Archie starts looking a lot better. Then you lose some of the pass interference rules so he can start putting the ball in the air more. And you've got receivers that can go down the field and go get it. It doesn't mean he was a perfect quarterback. He made a lot of mistakes, especially if you watch some of the footage. You can almost see it in this picture here. He had this sidearm-style delivery, partially because – he never got somebody working with his mechanics, so he had a consistent stroke. So sometimes you got a great, unbelievable pass, sometimes you got these awful passes. But the man could run, he could pass, he was a fairly accurate passer. So that's that's part that's all part and parcel of the whole thing. When you start looking at the later quarterbacks, you've got a much better team put around them. You've got a much better system consistent system put around them. So, you know, if Drew Brees had to deal with uh, new head coaches every two years and new offensive systems or they were asking him to do things he couldn't do and he was being put behind terrible offensive lines, it's not to say, you know, oh, poor Drew kind of thing, but I don't think Drew would be nearly as good as he could as he is if he had to go through the same things Archie went through. And I think I think that uh, one facet of this, and anytime you compare eras, players from this era to players of this era, I think something that gets lost in that translation is the fact of, and especially when you're you're trying to compare a Archie Manning with a Drew Brees, what people, a lot of the newer fans don't particularly understand is just exactly how different the game itself is now as compared to when Archie played. Yeah. As you as you alluded to, the, the pass interference 
penalties are so much different now than they were then. I mean, back then, as long as you didn't draw blood, it wasn't <laughs> really a complete, completely a flag. There well, was no it, such thing as film as uh, instant replay review, and, and all of that never, never you was had, part of you the had, game then. You could you could jam receivers all the way down the field as long as the ball wasn't in the air. You could pick them up and throw them down. Basically, as a shot of Bill Blunt, I think in, in uh, Super Bowl ten, it might have been might have been just a playoff game. I'm thinking of Mel Blunt just taking Drew Pearson and picking him up and throwing him on the ground. Um, that was Super Bowl ten. Yeah, and that was totally legal because yeah. the ball hadn't been thrown yet. Um, so there was no five-yard bump rule that happened in 78. Um, offensive linemen, I don't know if you remember this, but when you had to block back then, you was a block with your hands closed, your arms bent out like this, and this is how you were supposed to block. You couldn't do this because that was holding. Because yeah. as soon as you had your hands open, that was holding. Um, you know, just those kind of roles. It was so different. Everything was about riding a guy away. You know, if you were going to run block, you were getting underneath him, you were pushing up this whole time. But they wanted to see those fists close. You know, uh, you came out and you hit, you know, but you had to keep your fists closed like that. You couldn't have your hands open um, because that was holding. So, yeah, when they changed those passing block, pass block rules, you know, the first and defender says they just legalized holding. Um and that's just the way it goes. You know, it's amazing you think about that kind of stuff. You know, and that, that well, all the, goes. The, the National Football League is very, very. Uh, what's the word? Quarterback driven now. They want the excitement that people are wanting to watch on TV and watch in person. <laughs> so they're going to clear the way for so much more to be allowable. So the quarterback. In, rather than do a pedestrian hundred and some odd yards passing a game, they want the, the 300, 400 yards passing a game. The four and five touchdowns, it's not as exciting for the I watched, now. I've got Super Bowl three on videotape, and I've got Super Bowl, which when NFL Network rebroadcast it, uh, and I've got I've seen on YouTube Super Bowl eight and Super Bowl nine, and quite frankly, compared to today's game, those games are incredibly boring. Um, even though they're full of Hall of Fame players, um, what uh, Bob Greasy in Super Bowl eight, I think, put the ball in the air seven times the whole game, seven yeah. times. Um, completed six passes, but seven times. Um, you know, My and, wife and I went to supper at uh, Chili's a few ago, and I don't know exactly when it was or exactly why the it was, but as we were sitting there, I want to say it was the NFL Network that they had tuned in on the TV, and they were showing Super Bowl three with Joe Namath. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sitting, I'm sitting there watching, it and I'm going. This has got to be the most boring thing that I have ever seen in my life. Because yeah. it was like, Joe, Joe Willie, throw a pass. Okay, we're going to run it over here. We're going to run it over here. Joe Willie, throw a pass. We're going to run it over yeah. here. We're going to run it over here. And then the third time, they messed up. They run over here and then run over here. And I'm like, Jesus. I mean, yeah, you know, you know. <laughs> I have. Uh, I used to have on uh, DVR, but it, it's gone now. Um, the uh, Hail Mary playoff game between the uh, Vikings and the Cowboys, where yeah. Roger Stomach throws the Hail Mary to Drew Pearson in '75, uh, and I was just amazed. Third and seven, they're running a draw play, you know, and that was like expected. Not th not put the ball in the air. No, we're not going to put the ball in the air. We're going to run the ball and play field position the whole time. And that's why the rules were changed because, you know, you were ending up with games 16 to 6, uh, 14 to 7. There's a 77 Ram Saints game. It's 14 to 7. Um, they're, you know, 10 to 3. Those games are not uncommon. Um, you know, scoring a lot of points was a 28 
you break the 28 point barrier. That was a that was a high scoring game in those days, and you didn't realize it at yeah. the time because that's just how the game was played. But when you look at today, yeah. it's just so different. Um, I can remember the first game that I ever heard referred to as a track meet was the Dallas Cowboys and the Pittsburgh Steelers second Super Bowl, Super Bowl thirteen, where they. The, the final score was, if I'm not mistaken, 34 31. Yeah. Yeah. 30, yeah that, 34 35 31. Yeah. The, yep. the news report that night referred to it as, uh, as a track meet. And yeah, I, and I if, often remember that now when we look back at, in terms of looking at the game then through the eyes of uh, what the league is now. And it's. It's really weird. Well, hey, I don't know how many people remember the Buffalo Bills versus San Francisco 49ers game um, back in the, in the mid-90s. Uh, Steve Young against Jim Kelly. I want to say it was uh, 92, 93, somewhere around there. No punts in the game. Zero punts. And that yeah. was a historic that was moment. first time ever. They went yeah, it was a historic moment. And the first time ever that they went through an entire game with no punts. Yeah, and we've had a Saints game recently where we had zero punts. So, you know, it, it, it's yeah. – you, know, you just look at the difference between then and now. Um, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, though, uh, why I put Jim Everett on the list and also Aaron Brooks. We need to talk about Aaron Brooks and because a lot yes, of people feel like Aaron Brooks should be higher, probably should be the second – Greatest quarterback behind Archie Manning. I mean, behind uh, Drew Brees, ahead of Archie Manning, I should say. And Jim Everett. There's just as there's just as many people. Uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think it, mm-hmm. I need to make this point. There's just as many people that probably at the same time feel like Aaron Brooks doesn't even need to be included. He's at oh, the yeah. same time one of the most yeah. polarizing one of the most Absolutely. fascinating players in this team's history. But I, I want you to go ahead and reinforce this argument statistically. Okay, well, here, here's, the yeah. here's the thing with Aaron Brooks. Here's the thing with Aaron Brooks, and we go back to Aaron Brooks, um, and then we're going to have to get moving because we're actually spending a lot of time on these quarterbacks. Uh, Aaron Brooks is polarizing for one reason. We're going to talk about this with Joe Horn next week. The end of that 2002 season, when he got hurt, and they only needed to win one game to win to go back to the playoffs. And they've been in the playoffs for the second time in three years. Okay. The end of the 2001 season, we lost three games straight and we in a horrible fashion. And that was a season where, you know, we had just won our first playoff game. We figured, okay, everybody's healthy. We'll get going. We should be able to go back to the playoffs. It didn't happen. Um, and there was a lot of turmoil in the locker room. That was the Willie Rofe issue. That was uh, when Willie Rofe got hurt. Uh, and then you had the locker room thing with his wife and everything else. Uh, you know, the, the defense wasn't as good as it was the year before. Uh, so, you know, and Ricky Williams and Deuce McAllister did not get along. So, you know, you had a lot of t- turmoil there. And they thought they cleared up a lot of that in the 2002 season. And here, Aaron Brooks gets hurt in that uh, Tampa game. He hurts his shoulder. Um, he was having a pretty good year at that point, and he gets hurt. Jake DeLone comes in, finishes that game, throws a critical pass to Joe Horn for a first down. Tampa only has two losses that whole year on their way to win the Super Bowl, and both of them came against the Saints. So we here we are. We play the Baltimore Ravens in Baltimore when this was still the Ravens' defense. Uh, Aaron Brooks gets hurt again, gets knocked out the game by halftime. Jake DeLone finishes the second half of the game. We win that game. So now I think we were nine and four. Yeah, I think we were nine and four. Maybe I don't remember how that. I don't remember how that season ended exactly anymore. But. All we had to do was win one more game, and we're in the playoffs. And we play Minnesota in the Dome. The only time the Saints ever wore the gold jerseys, the gold jerseys, the black pants. Deuce has a great game, uh, an incredible game. Aaron Brooks looked pretty good for about three and a half quarters. And then you start seeing the arm trouble. 
He was having a hard time completing passes, and the defense just completely fell apart. Um, I was in the end zone when I saw, you know, the fumble snap by Dante Culpepper on the on – the, it was fourth down, I think. They had to go for a touchdown to win the game. A field goal would have tied it. Minnesota was terrible. Mike Tice was the head coach, and he just said, what the hell? We're not going anywhere. We're going to go for it. And if we get it, we get it. We don't, we don't. Well, of course, they get it. Okay. They win that game. The next week, they go to play Cincinnati in the ugliest, hard, most horrible game in the world. Aaron Brooks, after about two series, can't throw the ball well anymore. The Saints lose that game. Jake DeLome still doesn't come in. So then we finish up against Carolina, a terrible Carolina team. Um, Rodney Pete, I think, was the, the quarterback. Um, and Brooks yeah. can't even complete a series without the arm strength disappearing. He has – I think he had – I think Jake Reed came back that year uh, for the end of that game. But there was one play where he's got a wide-open receiver in the end zone. It's about a 20-yard pass for him to throw that ball. And I'm watching it. I can see he's open. And Brooks looks his way and pulls it down and tries to throw it underneath, and they have to set up for a field goal. They don't get the touchdown, and they lose the game. So they lost the last three games. They made the playoffs. The next day, they announced that Brooks has shoulder surgery. So fans are livid. They are livid. So I think that's when it started to turn against Aaron Brooks because then the next year, in 2003, he has a pretty good year, but you start hearing things about he's upset that he wasn't named in the Pro Bowl. He doesn't want to throw a pass at the end of the half, well, before uh, the end of a half, uh, because it's going to mess up his stats, a Hail Mary pass. You know, these kind of things start coming out. And then 2004, it's the, you know, the backwards pass and the things. And all that stuff, the smiling after interceptions, all that stuff just builds up and builds up. So they're mad at Hazlitt for not putting DeLume in to go to the playoffs. They're mad at Brooks because he was hurt. He should have taken himself out of the game. They're mad that the Saints aren't going to the playoffs, and they look worse and worse each year because we're drafting badly. We're signing horrible free agents. Sound familiar? You know, all these things are going on. (laughs) Yeah, so people are pissed. And I, I think that's what really turned people against Aaron Brooks more than anything else. So when you throw the stats at people, they're like, but he didn't win. He never won. You know, he won in 2000. That was it. You know, and that, that's what got people. So to me, that's, that's, uh, that's why Aaron Brooks is always going to be in third place behind Archie because yeah. Archie lost. Archie lost, but he never made excuses. He never came out and said, you know what? Get me the hell out of here where I can go somewhere where I have a a general manager who's not an astronaut. I got a head coach who wasn't head coach of the Richmond Roadrunners of of a semi-pro league. You know, I'm playing with guys who actually – and that's a a true story. That is a true story. That's exactly where J.D. Roberts came from. He was head coach – of the Richmond Roadrunners of some semi-pro league before the Saints team even had coach. Um, okay. You know, I'm not playing with, you know, guys that have no business being professional football. You know, some dude named Oakley Dalton, who was this big monster dude, who, uh, you know, uh, Hank Stram had to have him on the team because he was six seven in this tree. And he said he played football because he wanted to stay out of prison because he shot some dude. You know, I mean, that, it's almost comical, Ooh. the players they put around him. And so, no, you know, no, that's, that's why they man, like Archie. We're looking at almost in the rearview mirror, man. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I, could do, I could do drunken history on the Saints as well. I'll tell you what. Um <laughs> Hey, we, we really burned up a lot of time on that stuff. But uh, <laughs> let me ask you something here. What's let's that, look bro? at the uh, let's let's get away from the defense, uh, get away from the quarterbacks for a minute, and look at defensive line uh, of the current Saints and keep people interested. Um, <laughs> how do you feel about Nick Fairley? Should we keep this guy? Uh, he's already said he's looking to get less than um, 
Cam Jordan's money, which is about 11000 a year, uh, which is what Cam is getting made. So you're looking at between nine and 10 to keep yeah. fairly. Would you pay him that kind of money? You know, I, I, I'm kind of, uh, I'm torn, actually. I, I'm not going to go so far as to say that the success for the 2017 season is going to be predicated on whether or not we retain fairly. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go that far. I can understand why people would think that, but I, I, I don't buy into that at all. I, I think that we absolutely need to make uh, paying fairly and, and retaining fairly a um, – we, we need to make that paramount. But at the end of the day, it, it's all going to boil down as best as I can figure. It's going to come down to not necessarily what the Saints want, but whether or not Nick Fairley wants to stay a Saint. Because there's going to be teams there, no matter, excuse me, no matter what the Saints offer him, there's going to be teams out there that are in a position to better that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and him being a, a unrestricted free agent is going to put him in the driver's seat to where he can call the shots and say, this is what I'm going to take, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, it, it's it's basically going to boil down to whether or not Nick Fairley wants to continue to wear the black and gold and stay with the team that made him relevant once again. Here, here's my thing with Fairley about the kind of money he's asking for. I think you're going to see teams throwing around a lot of stupid money right now uh, in free agency. So is let's just say it's $9 million a year. You know, he's looking for nine five. You know, I, I don't think you're going to be able to get a replacement for him at a cheaper amount. I don't think you will get a guy for th- between three and five million. I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think the market is going to drive up the price so much that you either pay fairly between nine and ten million dollars. Or you pay another guy eight and a half to nine million. Yeah. So if that's the choice I'm facing, I'm going to stick with the guy fairly, who was a former number one draft pick, who knows your system and seems to thrive in it. Yes, I know there's a risk that fairly's got the reputation of taking plays off and, you know, Maybe yeah. he got paid. Maybe he played so well in our system because he was hungry and he thought, okay, yeah. this is, I'm playing for a contract. And once he gets that contract, he becomes like Norman Hand and the rest of those guys from the past who were satisfied. But my fear is we're going to go Carl Nix versus Ben Grubbs. We're going to let Nix go and pay Ben Grubbs, who's not as good. But we paid him almost what you could have paid Knicks, although Knicks wanted that extra money. You know, that that's just my fear that, you know, we're gonna we're gonna try and go a little cheaper and we're gonna lose more than we, I, if we just would have paid a little bit more and kept the guy we needed. That's my fear. I, well, there's a lot of talk going on at this point in time uh, from people that are supposedly in the know. Uh, talking about how if the Saints pick up an edge rusher in free agency, then that doesn't have to be the time. Let me ask you, Alan, would you consider the uh, edge slash defensive line position to be the the position that needs to be dressed with the number 11 draft pick? Well, look, Kruger was – you know, uh, uh, he wasn't any good for us. Um, you know, he did not fit the system or he just was done. Whatever the reason was, he could not rush off that edge, and we had a lot of problems on the edge, okay? Part of the reason, and we've talked about this before, part of the reason why we are giving up so many third and long completions was twofold. One, we couldn't get pressure unless we blitzed. And two, 
we had because we blitzed, we had to have our corners play in this loose man kind of defense where we kept everything in front of us. So, you know, like the Kansas City game, it's third and 18. We, sh- we have in the position when we should make a play and we give up a 19-yard pass completion, you know, that kind of stuff because we couldn't get to the quarterback. So we had time for that route to develop. And our cornerbacks are dropping back because they don't want to give up the big play because they're anticipating enough pressure getting to the guy. He's not going to be able to throw that deeper, deeper route. So it's a catch-22. I think we need to address that position in the draft. I'd like to see it addressed at 11. But if the player that fits us is not there, you don't reach for a guy just because you have to have it. So let's say for the sake of argument, um, I don't know, nobody drafts any offensive players in the first 10 picks. So, you know, Barrett's gone. you know, uh, Solomon's gone, uh, you know, so you're looking at Taco Charlton at 11. We don't take Taco at 11. You don't take Taco, period, in the first round. But you don't take him at 11. So, you know, then you start looking at Reuben Foster. You start looking at cornerbacks. You start thinking about, okay, who, who else is available? So my answer is yes, you do, but no, you don't reach. Okay. Okay. That's just that makes how, sense. I, that's how I look at it. Uh, you, you, you need an edge rusher. You need somebody who can both rush the passer and play the run, can stretch plays out because that's what you need, that defensive lineman. You can't just have an undersized guy whose job is to rush the passer. you got to have somebody who can play all three downs and can stretch out plays when you try and break it to the outside because that's what ate us up this past year is – you know, plays, quick flare-out passes to the outside. Atlanta did that. Quick pitches and so forth. Stretching our defense out wide. So now all of a sudden the cutback lanes are open up because we start yeah. getting wider and wider in our formation, you know. And you need somebody who can also rush the passer so you don't have to blitz six. You can you can rush five. You can rush four and get to the quarterback. Absolutely. Who would you consider um, either is in terms of the defensive line? Who would you consider to be the 2016 most valuable player? Here we go. This is going to set some people off. While I think Cam Jordan played at a Pro Bowl level and played unbelievably well, considering he had nothing on the other end. Okay. I do think Nick Fairley was your MVP player. And I know people are like, what do you mean by that? Think about this. Your first-round draft draft choice breaks his leg in training camp. He's gone for the first eight weeks of the season. Imagine what this defense would have been like those first eight weeks if we would have had to have had John Jenkins playing next to Tyler Davidson. Oh, my God, it would have been like Rob Ryan defense all over again, you know. So as good as Cam Jordan played, I thought Nick Fairley was the MVP because not only did he hold down the position excel in those early games until Rankins came back, he and Rankins worked very well together in a tandem uh, when you had to rush the passer. You did not have this huge drop-off. So – that's probably playing a little bit into my attitude about whether or not we should sign him because I'm like, you know, really, Onyemata is too raw, and we had Jenkins in there before, and he was so bad, we had to get rid of him. And when we had um, Hicks before, Hakeem Hicks over there, fairly played better than Hicks did when Hicks was a Saints player more consistently. Yeah. So, yeah, I, that's that's my choice. I don't know about you. What's uh, what? How do you feel? Uh, you know, you can't ignore Cam Jordan's stats, but I guess the simplest way that I know to put it is Cam Jordan got all the fanfare. Nick Fairley did the dirty work to make what Cam Jordan did possible. So uh, I would absolutely have to go with Fairley as well. And yeah, it's not a knock on Jordan at all. Jordan played an incredible no, game. No, 
He was no, I, I, I don't diminish what Cam Jordan accomplished on the field in any way whatsoever. Uh, Cam Jordan is a cornerstone that this defense has depended on for years and likely will for years into the future as well. But at the same time, you, you can't diminish what Nick uh-uh. Fairley meant to this defense this past season. With with losing um, Rankins for eight weeks, and then you give Rankins about two to three weeks to really kind of get back into football playing shape, and really kind of by the time he started hitting his stride, it was almost the end of the season. Um, yeah, it just uh, you know fairly got the sacks, fairly got the stuffs. You know he got he was a good run defender. Uh, he really he really fit this defense what we were trying to do. For a guy that we really weren't going to count on much, you know, he was a rotational player, especially once we drafted yeah. Rankins. And now, if Rankins would have been healthy all year long, we probably not even have this discussion about Fairley. But yeah. it's because Rankins was out. And I just don't trust health issues with the Saints. You know, I want depth. I want extra players on here. So that's why I put all him right. in, that, in that category. Okay, well uh... – let me ask you, Alan, do you have any extra point for this week? I mean, this is a, a, a segment that we instilled way early in the beginning, and we get to it when we can. We don't yeah. like to uh, we don't like to cut off our guests or shortchange what we have going on, but we like to do this as often as we can. Uh, maybe in the future we'll we'll get it uh, a little more systematic where we do it all the time. But uh, our extra points. Uh, do you have anything? Well, uh, you know, the only thing I've really got is um, we're going to talk. I only talk a little bit about fake news, and it's this isn't political, although that's now the political thing. Uh, I'm talking about fake sports news. I'm I had to unfollow Jason Lockenford, barely follow Ian Rappaport because. I am tired of the splash reports. I am tired of the unsubstantiated rumors. Half the time, I don't even follow. I don't even read it anymore because I know we're in the era of it's instant communication between Twitter and Facebook and uh, you know just everything out there. Sports sites, you know, everyone is trying to get the news out right away. Everybody wants to get it out, get get the scoop. So, you know, people start sharing those those links and everything like that. And here, you you know, you have things that happen, and they put out really speculation stuff. And what happens, and we're going to see a lot of this coming up in the next couple of weeks, the speculation becomes a story. And we had to deal with this at the end of the season with, you know, Sean Payton uh, is interested in the Los Angeles Rams job. Sean Payton's interested in the Indianapolis Colts job. And we're going to see this come draft day. You know, um, some player, I, I can't remember who it is now, said he doesn't want to play for the Cleveland Browns. I think it was uh, uh, the, the Garrett from the, from the um, Texas A&M. He said, I don't want to play for Cleveland. You know, and so we had this conversation about, you know, this player, and he may not have even said that. It's all just rumors and speculation because that drives the news because there's really not a whole heck of a lot happening right now. We spent 30 minutes and I know talking about Archie Manning and most people watching this never even saw Archie play uh, because right now it's kind of a dead point of the season as far as football. So, you know, I'm tired of the fake news cycle of, we're going to do – we're going to throw something out there and let the fans all talk about it and see if it sticks. It's non-football, but you're seeing it right now with the trade with trade stuff. They're all talking about Chris Paul maybe coming back to the, to the New Orleans Pelicans, you know, because it, it, he's not being offered for trade, but he's a possible free agent from the Clippers. It's fake because Chris Paul never said, I'm thinking about leaving. There is no credible report saying he's thinking about leaving. But it's speculation that drives it. And I get tired of seeing it, honestly. I mean, it just gets old. That's really my extra point. 
Enough with the speculation. Stick with hard, real news. Don't generate fake news. Well, you know, you and I come up in a different era than the era that we're in now. And it's it makes it really hard when the the people that you depend on, you cannot depend on. And I get what you're saying completely. And I'm not, I, I can't disagree with it at all. Now, now my extra point this week is, uh, is a little bit more positive. Uh, I want to take a moment. I, I couldn't find anything to be pissed off about. Uh, the, the Falcons lost the Super Bowl, so I'm good. Uh, couldn't find anything to be pissed about, so I want to be a little positive. I want to uh, – there's a guy that he is uh, – you see myself and you see Alan every week on here, uh, unless you're Stevie Wonder or Ray Charles, <laughs> uh, which is a whole different story different story but anyway uh there's a guy that's just as big a part of this operation as the two of us and that is mr john pinto uh you guys will never fully know the amount of stuff that this guy does to make sure that the under the dome podcast show goes off without a hitch and uh, I don't feel like I ever fully uh, show my appreciation to John enough, but uh, and I don't want to by any means come across as maybe grandstanding or anything, but I, I just want to uh, to let you guys know, uh, show John how much you appreciate what he does to keep this show running and, and to get this show out there to you guys, because uh, he's as big a part of it as Alan and I are. And he works just as hard at it as the two of us do. So John Pinto salute you, brother. Thank you so much for everything that you do. Absolutely. Absolutely. The first Pinto I like. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you, for some of y'all who may not know, uh, Ford made a car called the Pinto in the seventies. It's a horrible car. And, uh, they put the, Nova. Gas, yeah. Oh, well, no, that was Chevy. And they put the gas tank in a bad place. So if you rear ended a Pinto it exploded in this huge ball of flame, which I think I've just explained a joke that was in, uh, one of the Zucker brothers films. But anyway, um, yeah, so I have to say this is the first Pinto <laughs> I liked. John Pinto. He'll well, uh, I, I couldn't think of a movie reference to use, uh, which is the only thing that it probably would have made him appreciate it more. But uh, John, John, I, I John Pinto, you. John Pinto is on a mission from God. He'll appreciate that one. <laughs> Okay, good enough. No. Uh, we want to remind everyone, uh, one week from tonight, Mr. Hollywood, uh, get your, as the man himself, John Pinto, uh, tweeted out this week, get your cell phones ready. Joe Horn's going to be in the house. I got to go find that picture. I've got a picture where I met Joe Horn with Matthew. And Matthew is probably uh, my son. He is probably eight, I think, maybe seven. Wow. Yeah, we took a picture together. Yeah, little bitty guy. Um, yeah, he, uh, this was, this. I had my jersey by now. So he was probably nine. He was probably nine, uh, eight or nine. Because I had my uh, number 12 jersey by that point. And we took a picture and I got the 12 jersey on. He's got a little little rugby shirt on. So I'm going to find that and try and post that on here. Uh, whoever took the picture did not take a very good picture because the camera's kind of blurry. But uh, I've met Joe a couple times. <laughs> I got an autograph picture up here from Joe um, up on the wall over here. You might be able to see it. Let's see. Uh, I can't zoom in, but it's right over there. Uh, but anyway, 
Yeah, uh, there's there's a couple there's a couple of things we've got from Joe over the years. So he's a very accessible person, very fun person. Uh, he doesn't live in New Orleans anymore, so he doesn't follow the Saints that closely. But he, he can comment enough on Saints. That's what hopefully we can get into next week. So please join us next week. Uh, we'll try and be sober because it is Mardi Gras night. Um, and uh, hopefully Joe is, Joe is straight. And I hope you join us. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm still fighting a cold. <coughs> I hope you join us next Tuesday night on Under the Dome. Good night, everybody. Thank, thank you guys so much. We love you. <laughs>